Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Peter Van Dorn, and I'm senior fellow here at Cato and editor of a publication called Regulation, where I've had the privilege to publish uh, some of today's guests. Um, we're having a forum today whose it's basically a forum on thinking about the role of the federal government in transportation policy, surface transportation policy, and the occasion is the reauthorization of the Intermodal Surface Highway and Transportation Act, which may or may not, probably won't happen this year, but was scheduled to happen this year. We have three distinguished panelists, uh, Alan Pizarski, Gabriel Roth, and Randy O'Toole. Each of them will speak for about 20 minutes, and then we'll have a half hour from 1 to 1.30 on Q&A from the audience, and then we'll adjourn to lunch up in the first floor winter garden here at Cato. Uh, my only request is that you not only put your cell phones on vibrate, put them on off because our electronic uh, people were recording this and our electronic technicians tell me there's inadvertent feedback in our systems when even the cell phone is even on. So please turn your cell phones off. With that, I will introduce our first guest uh, and first speaker. Alan Pizarski is a prominent transportation consultant. His resume is so long that I won't go through all of it. I think from my point of view, as a data nerdy kind of guy that I am, the most interesting thing he's done in his career is he's, he helped develop and then manage the National Transportation Statistics uh, program that DOT has from which we get much of our data about how the transportation world works. And from that work, he has published um, a, th a three-part series called Commuting in America based on census data and other sources, including the data systems he helped develop himself. And the latest of those was uh, published in 2006, and it's the go-to source for all of us who want to know uh, how commuting goes in America and, and how it doesn't go. And with that, our first speaker, Alan Pizarski. Thank you, Peter. <clears throat> Hi. It's, uh, I often come to Cato, uh, sit out there, and have seen some really great speakers. The last one was P.J. O'Rourke, and I don't know that I can be as funny as P.J., but it'll be fun to try. Um, we have this magical system they said would work, and by George, it did. This is a quick intro. This is a Transportation 101 for those of you who don't know a lot about the subject in the last six months. Please buy cars. We need to stimulate jobs in a weak economy. You've all heard about the, the clunkers program. But if we do that, don't use them. Uh, cars do terrible things. They create greenhouse gases. They do a lot of bad stuff. So it's policy that we will coerce people out of their cars after they bought them. <laughs> Maybe they could park them, lawn ornaments, whatever. But if they don't use them, then there won't be any gas taxes generated, and that's what we're depending upon to pay for the transit systems that people are going to have to use after we've driven them out of their cars. Uh, so I think what we're going to end up with by the end of the year, we'll have a little program that asks everybody to mail a check to the U.S. Treasury for whatever amount they think they would have paid in gas taxes um, in, the, in the coming years so we can, we can plan ahead. Um, they just catch up a little bit on reauthorization. It occurs roughly every six years. Uh, it tries to occur every six years. Let's say that the Congress typically fails to get that. Uh, the present impasse was supposed to have legislation by the end of this month. That is certainly not going to happen. Um, this kind of impasse, as I say, is not news. 
Whenever there's no money, and there is no money now, uh, then we all talk about why don't we address the federal role. We talk about what is the national policy. Uh, We talk about being innovative. Then money shows up and everybody goes home and spends it and forgets about being defining the federal role or by about worrying about things like what the national policy might be. Um, This next reauthorization is going to be almost totally about finance. Um, The stimulus package has added some help in there, but for the most part, not really anything significant. Um, The Congress has been toying with uh, tolling and congestion pricing, particularly in the last administration. This was a very strong point. The leadership in the Congress really doesn't like it. The only thing they like less is a gas tax. And so we're down to basically cake sales, um, trying to figure out where this money is going to come from. The last administration had talked about the private sector's role, but that was before Lehman, so we don't really know how much money is out there. We could end up what I tend to call devolution by default. Uh, There's talk of reorganizing the U.S. DOT, away from the modal structure that it has into something called a functional structure, intercity, metro, metro mobility, uh, and that term is basically code for uh, heavy orientation to transit, bicycling, and walking. The intercity side doesn't really reference high-speed rail, but I can guarantee you that that's where it's going to show up. Uh, There's a lot of talk about performance-based planning, performance-based management, and it makes you feel really good that that we're really focusing on that, except when you start looking at the legislation, what you see is that it ends up that what that really means is that there's this really smart guy behind a desk in Washington who's going to figure out what everybody ought to have. Uh, And so it tends to make one nervous. The focus on land use policies one you, is, again, a very strong new focus. Historically, this has not been part of the program. <clears throat> and the notion of coercion, of getting Americans out of their cars, uh, is kind of standard in everybody's thinking about what the next legislation will look like. And, and so in my mind, if this legislation doesn't come to pass too soon, it wouldn't hurt uh, at all. In fact, I think having a breather, having time... 16, 18 months, maybe two years uh, to think about it. Uh, Obviously, transportation people don't like that idea. They'd like to get the money moving and be able to plan their programs. But in fact, this would be a a great occasion to actually read the legislation. Uh, And I know that's out of of fashion these days. But in fact, we can look at the legislation and and I hope begin to correct some of the the silly things in it. Talk a little bit about history. Most histories talk about 1956, Eisenhower, as the start of the interstate system. Actually, that was the the day that we started the the plan for funding. Uh, The legislation, this is hard to see uh, because photography is very difficult in in this environment. This is a map sketched by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1937. Those blue lines were drawn by him uh, on his idea for... The interstate, as I say, this is 37, so this is 20 years before before the funding. Uh, this is uh, another map, uh, 47, just after the war. All during the war, they were continuing the plan. By 44, they had a draft of this map, and it was updated. So this thinking is, uh, my, my main point in all of this is it takes a long time. The gestation period here is, is really rather dramatic. These maps are, 
are originals, and I've actually held them. Uh, they're at the National Archives, as you might expect. Pretty neat stuff. Um, what came out of it, 56, was the funding concept. The system was to be funded by user charges paid into a trust fund, and the fundamental principle was users should pay for, for their use of the system, and government should dedicate the funds that they receive to making the, uh, the system better for those who use it. <clears throat> this entire concept, uh, which has been with us for a long time and, and has kind of built-in effective controls, uh, is being lost, I'm afraid, rather rapidly. <clears throat> this is a great poster from that era. Uh, this is trying to get people to accept the, uh, uh, the program in 56. I mean, it's worth mentioning everybody now, when you think about the interstate, of course, it's a no-brainer. Of course, it had to be. It was you know, a wonderful idea. But it was not that easy a sell in the Congress. In 55, it failed. In 56, it passed. And the reason it passed is because AAA and American Trucking both said, we will not support this thing unless you make sure that that money that you're going to tax us on goes into a separate trust fund, and that can only be used for, for highways because they had had a lot of experience with the Congress doing funny things with money. <clears throat> well, in addition, we also got a system, I think, uh, capable of attracting support and, and repelling diversions. Uh, the, the interstate was the flagship of the program for many, many decades. Uh, now, no such flagship exists. Uh, and it shows. In the last, we've had three interim reauthorizations starting in 1991. Um, and now we have a funding system without a clear purpose, and that breeds very strange stuff. Uh, every time we come up on reauthorization, we say, well, we're on the cusp of a new era, a new interstate era. This is the way it's going to go. Uh, or maybe we'll, the Congress will just punt and, and, and we'll go through the system one more time uh, and, and muddle through. Um, so I don't know whether we're whether this is the one where we're really going to change or not. It's the talk of the post-post interstate era. So maybe after 18 or so years of post-interstate, we're going to launch onto something new. Uh, but don't bet on it. Uh, the Congress has a way to believe that it can always run away from any problem, no matter how big. And it wouldn't be shocking to see them actually just push this down a road for one more six-year cycle. Certainly, when they get to the gas tax. Uh, and, and the, the need to, to shift over to vehicle mile travel taxes or some alternative to gasoline, they will postpone on that, and it will slide at least, at least six years. However, I, I, I think we'll almost be at the stage where we wished that they would punt and, and push the thing down the road because, in effect, what we're going to have, what we may have is this perfect policy storm, if I may say so, we have a time of intense need for money, as, as you all have heard. The, the Highway Trust Fund is bankrupt. We have an, a time of intense anti-auto, anti-mobility plans and policies, and a time of strong policy cover by pricing theory that says pricing is somehow a very positive thing if you get it right. The result of all of that is what you can see in the offing is kind of punitive pricing, all for a good cause, uh, decline of user fees, uh, as a, as a real cornerstone of our program, and what I call the cash cowification of tolls and, and gas taxes, using these things as, uh, as tools for, for other, other needs, because the other needs are really great. And so you get, you get this situation of, the, of government being able to tax 
for your own good because it's a very they're going to create wonderful things with that tack. <clears throat> the, the present policy debate, <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, has been a lot of discussion about this too much transportation, too much transportation spending. The low income people are, are transportation poor. Transportation is trade-off with housing. Going out to the suburbs doesn't work. It's a failure. Job sprawl out to the suburbs is another bad thing. We all must come home to the center city. And the question is, you know, is the public misbehaving here? Are they uh, policy made it uh, awful, or is it just that, that people aren't very smart and that somehow don't know how to, how to live properly? Um, the $4 gallon gas tax uh, last year, I think, really brought this out. There was a kind of a, a hooray from uh, the press in many cases. Uh, you know, those suburbanites uh, had it coming, uh, living in their McMansions, driving, their, driving to McDonald's in their McHummers. And uh, uh, at last, we are at the tipping point. This is what's going to drive everybody back to the center city. I, I can't tell you how many reporters called me up and said, is this the tipping point? Is this when, in fact, everybody really comes home? Uh, on the other side, if you look at it from the point of view of productivity and interaction, economic and social, this is not a really great time to try to suppress that kind of level of activity. What I'm defending here, I guess, is the personal vehicle, the personal vehicle road system where the owner determines when and where it goes and who goes along. Uh, I don't particularly care about the internal combustion engine or what we use, but it's the term, the concept personal vehicle versus mass, I think that's significant. It's not particularly critical that I have to defend it. This is the long-term trend. This is American commuting patterns from 1960 to 2007. Uh, this is auto-oriented. This is the, the red is transit, and the yellow is working at home and walking. And you can see the dominant pattern for the last 47 or so years, and in fact going back earlier in that, pretty much says that we added 66 million commuters and 70 million of them were auto drivers. That means all of them went into the auto and a whole bunch shifted from other modes. Uh, so the auto wins the market debate. It loses the policy debate every time. <clears throat> and I, it's very difficult to try to convince uh, Congress that people travel for rational reasons. Uh, reasons is this tendency to say these you know, foolish people out there driving around, uh, and we just got to get them out of their cars. I was asked, I guess it's now, what, 30 years ago, I testified in the Congress, and they asked me, what percent of travel is frivolous? And I said, well, I thought going to church didn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, you know, I, what can you say to such a question? And the answer was, what I gave them was a trip distribution by purpose, and I, let, I said, you pick out which purposes you think don't make sense. Um, and this is part of the, the debate, part of the conflict that I think we're into. There's this slow decay of the user principle that I mentioned before on the spending side and on the revenue side. The transit share uh, in the 80s, we shifted a certain percentage of the highway fund to transit. Uh, we went into something wonderful called enhancement uh, that, that began to divert funds. Earmarks, of course, you're all familiar with, I suppose. And the, the emphasis on local needs more and more as the program goes along and has less and less purpose, less and less clear public purpose, then you begin to see things like this creeping in, high-speed rail as it's coming on. On the revenue side, you're having all of these general revenue bailouts uh, that, are, uh, that are coming forward. 
and uh, and we have another one in the offing in order to get us to this uh, uh, to this period 18 months from now, probably 18 months, perhaps even two years from now, where we actually reauthorize the thing. Last time around, we had I think it was 12, wasn't it, Greg? 12 uh, uh, continuing resolutions. And they're talking about three months versus 18 months, and I think what we'll see is six three-month continuing resolutions. So it'll be 18 months, two years, before we actually get down to the business of it. My big interest is protecting the federal user fee. Uh, I don't think we've quite reached the post-gas tax era yet. Uh, We need to prepare for it, certainly. Uh, The research needs to be done. The testing needs to be done. But the tendency to walk away from the gas tax, I think, is scary to me, number one, I think one penny of gas tax throws off $1.7 billion. And there's a whole lot of people who would be happy to help spend that money if it isn't dedicated to transportation. Uh, If you look at Europe, uh, without dedication, there's no upper limit on the the gas tax. You just look at any European country, $3 a gallon, $3.50 a gallon, $4 a gallon. Uh, And it's basically a a major source of general revenue in, in, in these countries because it's easier to, to patrol than, uh, than, uh, than is, uh, uh, you know, taxation of, of, uh, of income. The continued diversion has kind of ended support. People are not willing to support uh, increases in taxes because we're not quite sure where the money is going to. Uh, and there's no way to assure that the federal tax, if one abolished it tomorrow, that it wouldn't be reenacted a year or two from now. The firewall RABA terms there are, are kind of terms of art. If anybody's really dying to know what they mean, I'll be happy to tell you. But in effect, it's a way to make sure that people don't take the money. The interesting thing about this process is that 10 years ago, there was like a $60 billion surplus in the, in the Highway Trust Fund. And this money was kept there. Uh, as a way to help balance the budget. It kind of made the budget look good. And then what these two pieces of legislation did is said, no, you're not allowed to do that. And the result of that was that they shifted it. And so now, in effect, the Congress has run the money down. It was run down consciously. It wasn't an accident that, gee, we, we thought there was a whole lot more money in that trust fund. They knew what they were doing. And their only plan was to have it go bankrupt the day after the legislation expired rather than a couple of months early. Maybe the good news in all of this is let the gas tax uh, dwindle uh, and eventually fit the program to whatever's left in that, in that gas tax. The conflict in the Congress now I, I describe as kind of two schools of thought. There's a, a neighborhood approach and a global approach. The neighborhood approach thinks in terms of shorter trips, walking, biking, land use, design solutions, doesn't understand what freight's all about, and the focus is on accessibility. If, if you really like this thing, you ought to be real, live right next to it. The global approach thinks about broader senses of community, longer trips, uh, more orientation to market force than to design, and a major, a major role for freight, mobility focused more than accessibility. The two keys, I think, really are the, the, the conflict between public and private, mass personalized, and behavior change as the focus and the one point of view, getting people to live the way we think they ought to live, and technological change, which says that American lifestyles will continue as, as people intend and technology will respond. The same thing that happened when we were in the, the air quality uh, debates of, of years past. 
the, this focus on changing behavior, I think, it really diverts us from some really important issues. Uh, enhancing economic opportunity, access to workers, uh, access to jobs, mainstreaming minorities, improving safety, serving an aging population, greater mobility, freedom, uh, and infrastructure. All of these things which need doing and are really tied into this, this political policy uh, uh, process now where these, this, these topics barely get discussed. I see this in terms of threats and, and maybe a few opportunities, uh, more threats than opportunities. The threats are uh, we could very well see policies to penalize dispersed jobs and dispersed households. We could see policies to promote higher density, uh, organized society, get things right, uh, subsidies to recentralize, subsidies to, to promote density a whole family of activities that you'll see in the House legislation and in the, 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 the discussions that the Senate has been holding. <clears throat> and you see in the literature a lot of this being, of course, tied to a three-parter. It's transportation legislation, it's environmental legislation, and then it's uh, greenhouse gas legislation. So you've got those three things all kind of operating in orbit. And, and, uh, and one of the key questions is who goes first and, and who gets to pay for the others. Uh, on the opportunity side, there are opportunities for increased mobility. Uh, there are great opportunities to promote job, greater job access, and, and ultimately to create a situation where the public, uh, where you can, where the public will be able to live where they want and actually work where they want. Uh, some people think that's kind of a terrible idea. Uh, let me throw up this last slide. Because I really think it's important to recognize that transportation tends to be treated as kind of a mundane, uh, you know, yes, it's always there, kind of like turning on the spigot and the water comes out. <clears throat> but it really is about reducing time and cost penalties of distance on our economic and social interactions. Uh, and, and when we do that, when we succeed in that, and America has succeeded more than any other nation, uh, we, we put into play great forces of, of opportunity and cohesion. So I guess with that, I think I can stop. I, ha I haven't even broken the three-minute barrier, have I, Pete? You're just fine. I'm covered. Thank you very much. Our second speaker is Gabriel Roth. Uh, he is a transportation economist and first uh, started to evaluate the economics of roads in the, in the middle 1950s and for his home government of Great Britain and... Um, then moved later in his career to work for the World Bank and has written uh, numerous books on transportation policy and some papers for the Cato Institute, which are available out uh, for your um, access afterwards. Gabriel Roth. Uh, thank you, Peter. Thank you. I I'm not very clever. How do I find my presentation on this machine? Beautiful. Every day. What is the way to make it go forwards or backwards? Space. 
goes forward. Yeah. Well, thank you, Peter, for those kind words. Uh, as a visitor to this country and a citizen of the United Kingdom, it would be quite wrong for me to say anything that would criticize the paragons of legislation known as the U.S. Congress. Uh, they, nevertheless, I want to ask whether the reauthorization of federal highway funding is really necessary. Now, the U.S. Congress has done many good things, and Alan has already mentioned the interstate highway system and the system of funding it, which was set up in the 1956 legislation. And uh, there are three main points there. Uh, the system to be constructed was over 41,000 miles of high-quality roads, funded mainly by means of federal fuel taxes, but completely by users. And the other thing in the legislation was that the powers under it would expire as three years after the system was completed. They expected the system to be complete in 1969, and 1972 was the year of which the powers were supposed to expire. What actually happened? The length of the system grew to almost 47,000 miles. The highway system was deemed complete in 1996, but the powers, uh, to my surprise, uh, were not abolished. So they're still there. What is going to happen next? Now, this is um, a pie chart which was uh, produced uh, by Randall. And he let me use it. It's from his paper, The Guide to Reauthorization. And um, you can see that we've completely got away from the idea of people paying for what they use and getting what they're prepared to pay for, which is what Alan spoke about. You see that only 20% of um, funds are to be devoted, are to be dedicated to highways. And this is, I know, worrying to many people. Uh, I confess that what worries me even more is the 58% which is left as flexible and earmarks. Now, I know that the members of Congress uh, all vote for what is good for the country uh, and for what their constituents want. But looking at other countries, one can envisage circumstances where an elected member might need, say, more funding for re-election and would want to exert pressure for, for money. This 58% 
seems to give an enormous power to legislator, legislators, which uh, could be used, I'm sure, for good things, but possibly for not so good. Let's look at the advantages and disadvantages of the federal financing of state roads. Now, the main advantage, and in fact the only advantage that I can see, is it enabled the interstate highway system to be completed. Those of us who know how government projects work appreciate the importance and the enormous achievement of getting a thing like this actually done. And this does show, give credit to, to all concerned. However, there are also disadvantages. Uh, first, it forces um, road users to pay for non-road projects, and it uh, violates the important principle that Alan mentioned of users paying for the services that they, that they receive. Second, it increases the costs of providing and maintaining roads. Third, it encourages the financing of low-priority projects. And, of course, it increases federal powers. I mentioned the 58%. But another example uh, is um, livability standards that appear in the uh, bill that came out of the tra House Transportation Committee. Uh, I'll come to that later. Now let's uh, briefly look at each of these. Uh, why does federal financing increase the costs of providing roads? First, because federal standards uh, can be higher than state standards. Uh, second, there are federal regulations such as Davis-Bacon, Buy American, and so on that increase costs. Um, third, the actual involvement of two bureaucracies having to talk to one another increases costs considerably. And road costs uh, easily can increase 25% because they are financed by the federal government. This does vary from state to state. Why are low-priority projects encouraged? Um, they are encouraged because the states get enormous... Uh, sh uh, proportions of the project costs from the federal government and they pay typically between 10% and 25% and all the federal money that comes in is regarded as free. So no state has any incentive to limit projects to ones that would cover their costs. It's like 50 people sitting down uh, to dinner and you can think whether uh, more money would be spent if each pays for what each orders or whether they decide to add the total together and then divide it by 50. This is basically how the system works. I skipped a... Uh, Use the back arrow key to go backwards. 
Now, how does one get back? Um, the back arrow key. The back arrow. Okay. Uh, federal powers are increased by the 58% um, of funding designated as flexible. Uh, also, there is this Office of Livability, which basically will enable Congress people to influence land use. Now, land development is something that has a lot of money in it, and the, the prospect of land developers being able to lobby Congress people uh, for better deals, uh, I, I find uh, frightening. So what would happen if the system is not reauthorized? First, uh, tax, taxes supporting the Federal Highway Trust Fund would expire at the end of September 2011. I have that figure from Greg Cohen, who's here, uh, who saw it in the last legislation on highways. Then, as federal funding expires, highway financing reverts to the states, each state is responsible financially for the roads uh, in the state. Third, revenues from federal road use taxes no longer available for diversion to transit or to other non-road uses. <clears throat> of course, states can still decide they want to do that, so the state of New York can use highway funding for uh, New York subway, but this is not something that goes from one state to another. And with such a small proportion uh, of re road use revenues uh, dedicated to highways, that's 20%, road users in all states would benefit uh, financially uh, if the financing would revert to the states and not stay with the federal government. How about consumer-driven mobility? Would consumers have more influence on their states or on the federal government? I think they would have more influence on the states um, because they're closer to their state government than to the federal government. Also, it is less easy for states to run deficits. Um, states cannot create money as easily as the federal government can. So there's a high probability that at least some states would, produce, would pursue consumer-driven policies um, <clears throat> if they were responsible. And then successful policies uh, would be copied by other states. How might reauthorization be prevented? Will the Congress volunteer to give up its powers? I think this is very unlikely. However, there are to be elections in 2010, and road users vote. So there may be time to persuade road users to vote for candidates opposing transportation reauthorization. Although I am not a citizen, I am a road user and I am a taxpayer and I sincerely hope 
that road users will make the effort to defeat the destructive reauthorization uh, which uh, is in the government pipeline. Thank you very much. Our final speaker is Randy O'Toole. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and he's the author of several books on transportation planning, including The, uh, the Vanishing Automobile and The Best Laid Plans. Um, Randy uh, runs his own blog and uh, is very active on transportation matters. And uh, our final speaker, Randy O'Toole. Well, after those presentations, I hope what I'm going to say is not going to overlap too much with what we've already heard. I'm not quite as radical as Gabe. I don't think we're going to stop Congress from reauthorizing transportation this time, but we might be able to make some of the, prevent some of the worst dangers and uh, uh, make it a little better and pave the way towards ending federal funding of transportation in the long run. Um, transportation is very important to America. Really, America is all about mobility. Uh, we rely on mobility to get to work, to go shopping, for recreation, uh, and 85% of all of our mobility is by automobile. Now, that makes us sound, if you don't like automobiles, evil, but 79% of mobility in Europe is by automobile, so we're not that much different from Europe. Now, this is relatively new. It's only been in the last half century or so that personal transportation has made a big difference in people's lives. A hundred years ago, uh, we had trains everywhere. We had 20,000 passenger trains a day in the United States. They went practically everywhere. And yet, really, trains were an elitist form of transportation. The average American in 1900 rode trains about 250 miles a year. Uh, at the peak in, in 1920, the average American rode intercity trains about 400 miles a year. That's totally inconsequential compared to how much the average American drives today. You can see by about 1923, automobile driving exceeded all other forms of transportation in the United States for, for personal travel. So the automobile has become the, what's enabled people to be mobile and free, uh, and whereas previous forms of transportation were mainly elitist. Uh, now, we talk about expensive cars and things like that, but the automobile really is egalitarian. Uh, if we look at the 2001 National Household Travel Survey, uh, it shows that the richest people in America travel less than twice as much, only about 75% more than the poorest people in America. And this is all forms of travel. The richest people in America fly a whole lot more than the poorest people in America. So if you're just looking at auto travel, the differences between these quintiles would be a lot less. Now, what we're seeing a debate about today is, is America down, going down the right path? Is it appropriate for people to be this mobile? Maybe we should be more like Europe, where people 
ride high-speed trains, and they ride subways, and they don't drive at all, at least so I'm told. Uh, I think there's a, a, a fantasy that Americans have about Europe. We go to Europe, we ride the trains, we ride the subways, and so that's what we see. They see it, they look crowded, so we think everybody in Europe is doing it. But the reality is uh, U- European travel habits are much more like our own than, than like what we imagine them to be. Just as an example, uh, there's five times as many European cities that have rail transit as American cities. And yet the average European travels 96 miles a year on rail transit, the average American 88 miles a year, just eight-mile difference. So in terms of inputs, yes, they put a lot of money into their rail transit systems, but in terms of outputs, there isn't that much more use of rail transit. Now, we can look at per capita mobility. It turns out Iceland is the second most mobile country in the world, as near as I can tell. Uh, this was before the recession, of course. Uh, uh, but other European countries are, are pretty mobile, too. But still, American mobility is far greater than in any other European country. And if you look, you see that driving is about a little more than half as much in other European countries in European countries as it is in the United States, but the increases in rail and other forms of travel do not come close to making up for the decreases in driving. I argue that those decreases in driving are mainly due to the punitive taxes imposed on European drivers, and uh, that leads them to drive less, But it, and those taxes are then used to subsidize high-speed rail, to subsidize urban transit, but that doesn't lead people to ride urban transit or high-speed rail all that much more than in in the United States. Now, the opponents of mobility in the United States argue that mobility has led to terrible consequences, such as urban sprawl, which is really just a way of saying that mobility has allowed two-thirds of American families to own their own homes, mostly single-family homes. And I don't think that's a bad thing. They also claim that mobility has made people fat. Well, it turns out that the, if you look at suburbs versus cities, the average suburbanite weighs about two pounds more than the average urbanite. Uh, that's not really enough to make me worried, but it also turns out studies show the reason why the average suburbanite weighs more is not because they drive more and walk less, but because people who weigh more decide to live in the suburbs. It's a matter of choice rather than of uh, uh, actual one causation. And then now the claim is that mobility is causing global warming. Transportation is responsible for almost 30% of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. Automobiles are only responsible for 20% or slightly less than 20%. But a report that was published last year by the Urban Lands Institute says there is no way we will be able to meet transportation's Uh, obligations to reduce greenhouse gas emissions simply through technological improvements. We have to reduce driving. If we don't reduce driving, we won't be able to meet our targets. So therefore, we have to reduce driving. And I forgot to get the audio uh, hooked up into this system, but... uh, 
you can't hear what she's saying, but she's asking, this is Ray LaHood, the Secretary of Transportation, she's asking him at the National Press Club, is it true, and she's, she almost laughs as she asks it, is it true that you're trying to co- coerce people out of their cars? Because she can't believe anything would be so absurd as to have the Secretary of Transportation trying to coerce people out of their cars. And he says, yes, we are trying to coerce people out of their cars. That is our goal. And by coercing people out of their cars, they're going to have huge impacts on America. One was defined in in this recent report from the Reason Foundation, an excellent report uh, by David Hartgen of uh, uh, North Carolina. And he showed that there's a strong relationship between mobility and productivity. And in particular, if you can get a greater number of people Uh, within 25 minutes of jobs, or a greater number of jobs within 25 minutes of people, you will have a significant increase in the productivity of your city. So cities that have more congestion, which effectively puts jobs further away from people in time, are going to have lower productivities. Cities that have less congestion, that do something about congestion, are going to have higher productivities. Now, another thing that... uh, reducing mobility does is it forces people to live in higher densities. Now, that's, of course, one of the goals of the Anti-Mobility Coalition. They want higher densities, but higher densities means higher housing costs. Houston, which has very little land use regulation, uh, you can buy a two-bedroom, or excuse me, a four-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath home on a quarter-acre lot easily for $170,000. Portland, which has a lot of land use regulation, the very same size of home would cost almost twice as much. San Jose, which has a tremendous amount of land use regulation, would cost uh, many times more what it costs in Houston. And that land use regulation in both Portland and San Jose are aimed at reducing mobility, reducing the need to travel. If you pack people into a tighter area, they think you won't need to travel as much. But because you can't travel as much, it does th- other things to you other than making your housing costs higher. For one thing, if you, can't, if you can travel a lot, you have your choice of retailers. You can go to Walmart. You can go to Kmart. You can go to uh, Kroger's. You can go to Safeway. You can go to Whole Foods. Uh, if you can't travel a lot, then your choice of retailers is going to be a lot more limited because you're going to be stuck with the one that's near you. And that's going to, with the less competition, that's going to allow retailers to charge you a lot more. Prices are going to be higher. And one of the reasons prices are higher is because the retailers will have a harder time getting their products in because of the traffic congestion. Um, most Americans say they aspire to live in a nice single-family home on a, with a, a yard. Uh, but we're going to try to deny that to them. We're going to try to get a higher percentage of Americans living in apartments and multifamily dwellings, condos, whatever. Uh, this is a condo in Portland. Uh, this is a similar uh, housing development in East Germany. It was built during the Soviet era. The difference between them is that when the East Germans got their freedom, they all moved out, and this one's being torn down. Uh, and now that Portlanders have lost their freedom, they've been forced to move into developments like this. Now, the idea, of course, is it's going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions because we're living in, you know, we've got common walls, and so it's going to reduce energy costs, right? Well, it turns out, according to the Department of Energy, on a per-square-foot basis, single-family homes 
have the lowest energy requirements, multifamily homes have significantly higher energy requirements per square foot. So really the only reason you're going to save energy living in something like this is by living in a smaller unit, smaller dwelling unit, than if you live in a single-family home. So they're talking about significantly reducing the quality of life for a lot of Americans. Now, of course, the other thing is if we're all packed into higher densities, we'll be able to take transit more, and that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions, right? Well, it turns out energy consumption for transit is not significantly different than for the automobile. You can see on here light trucks, that's uh, SUVs and pickup trucks and, and, and full-size vans, is about the same as buses. Uh, cars are about the same as light rail. Subways are a little bit better than cars, but on the average, but a, a Prius is significantly uses less energy per passenger mile than uh, even subways. So we're talking about going from one transportation system that uses a certain amount of energy to another one, but they use about the same amount of energy. And if you live in an area where uh, uh, electricity is, comes from burning of fossil fuels, then the uh, greenhouse gas emissions from subways and light rail are going to be just as much, if not more, than from cars and light trucks. Moreover, the energy efficiencies and greenhouse gas emissions from cars are declining rapidly, whereas the energy efficiencies and greenhouse gas emissions from transit are increasing on a per-passenger-mile basis. That's because we insist on building these rail lines into suburban neighborhoods that few, where few people are going to use them. So we end up with trains that are empty. On average, our uh, rail transit systems run one-sixth full. The average SUV run, runs at higher occupancies than that. So it's no wonder they don't get uh, very good fuel economy. For intercity transportation, it's the same thing. Amtrak today uh, consumes more, a little bit more energy per passenger mile than the average automobile in intercity travel. By 2025, automobiles are going to be the green form of transportation, Passenger trains and high-speed rail are going to be the brown form of transportation, although the real green form of transportation is buses. Uh, buses, intercity buses, as, as opposed to uh, urban buses, run where people want to go. Urban buses run where the taxpayers are. And so the urban buses run five-sixths empty, and the intercity buses run two-thirds full on average, and they use by far less energy and produce less greenhouse gas emissions per passenger mile than any other form of mechanized transportation in the country. You don't hear much about buses from all the people who want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. They want to build high-speed rail, which is going to require enormous amounts of greenhouse gas or energy and emit enormous amounts of greenhouse gases in the construction phase, and then the operations is not going to save very much. Why do they want to build high-speed rail instead of, instead of buses? Well, one explanation is the buses are unsubsidized. There's not a lot of pork to be given out with buses. High-speed rail is, makes good pork. Well, we've already talked about how uh, our interstate highway system was funded out of user fees. And I want to go into a little bit more detail. Those user fees, the gas taxes and, and other taxes on trucks, taxes up until 1972, taxes on cars, taxes on some tires. Those funds 
were distributed to the states based on the land area, population, and road miles of each state. There was a fixed formula, so each state knew how much it was going to get. And yes, they got 90% of their money for the interstate highways from the federal government, but if, if they decided to build really, really expensive interstate highways, they weren't going to get any more money for it, and so the states that built the most expensive ones, their interstate highways did not get completed for a long, long time. My home state of Oregon was one of the first states to finish all interstate highways. They were done in the, uh, in the 1970s. Colorado, however, did not get done until the 1990s because they elected to build I-70 through the Rocky Mountains, which was extremely expensive. But nevertheless, you had an incentive because you knew what you were getting a fixed amount of money. You had an incentive to spend it relatively efficiently. When, in 1982, Congress started diverting gas taxes to transit, the incentives changed. A large part of the transit money went into an open bucket. It was first come, first served. Uh, whoever grabs that money first gets it. And the cities that decided to spend a, a money on a really expensive transit projects got the most. This is a tunnel built for the Portland Light Rail Line, the original proposal was to spend to go over this mountain and spend about a quarter of a, a billion dollars on light rail, but then they decided to build this tunnel, and they spent a billion dollars on light rail, on this one light rail line, because of the cost of the tunnel. It added no new passengers, but it was 85% uh, paid for by the federal government, and so might as well go for the most expensive system you can. And when you have an open bucket, that's what happens. So we have cities all across the country trying to emulate Portland's wonderful example of spending enormous amounts of money on transportation systems that carry very few people at all. It's no coincidence that since 1982, when Congress began diverting uh, money out of gas taxes and into transit, that the cost of congestion has increased by 10 times the amount of fuel wasted in congestion each year has increased by five times. So we've had this huge increase in cost because we're spending our money on light rail, on subways, on uh, bike paths, instead of spending it on things that the people who, who are paying the fees are actually using. The advantage of user fees is that you connect the users to the producers. The producers will have an incentive to meet the needs of the users. So, and it, at the same time, the users will have an incentive to adjust their habits based on uh, what the costs are. So if the cost is $1.50, maybe I'll take the toll lanes as opposed to the free lanes. If the costs jump up to $2, I might be a little bit more likely to take the free lanes, even though they're more congested, than the toll lanes. If you get the users to pay the cost, and if you vary the cost depending on how much it actually costs to provide that service, you will shape both the behavior of the users and the producers. What happens with transit? We have transit fares, yes, but they only cover, on average, about 25% of the cost of transit. So then you get the transit users, who are about 1% of Americans, saying, gee, I need to have more rail transit so I can take trains in more places, and it's so economical. And we see groups like the Surface Transportation Policy Project saying, we need to build more trains to save families money. Well, how are you going to save families money when 75% of the money is, is uh, subsidized? So I propose 
instead of getting rid of federal transportation funding completely, which I think is a good long-term goal, but I don't think is going to happen this year, I propose to distribute federal transportation funds to the states based on a simple formula. Under this formula, the funds will be distributed 45% based on the population of each state, 5% based on the land area of each state, and 50% based on the user fees collected for transportation by that state and by the local areas in that state. User fees being gas taxes that are dedicated to roads, transit fares that are dedicated to transit, but general taxes are not a user fee. Gas taxes that are diverted to transit are not a user fee. Transit fares that are diverted to bike paths are not a user fee. So uh, the federal government would essentially match, uh, at some proportion, the user fees provided by each state. Now, this particular formula, 45550, results in a distribution of federal funds that's not much different than the state distribution today. But you would then get states... Uh, in a race to the top to try, come on, race to the top, there we are, in a race to the top to try to increase the amount of user fees they would collect because if they increase the user fees, they would also increase their federal matching funds. I propose that those federal funds could be spent on anything that the states want to spend them on. They could be spent on uh, rail transit, they could spend them on buses, they could spend them on highways, bike paths, whatever they want to spend them on, But because of this incentive, they would have an incentive to spend them on the things that actually produce user fees. And if that turns out to be trains, I'm happy. I love trains. If it turns out to be uh, uh, highways, that's fine. Now, for meeting goals like reducing carbon emissions or reducing toxic emissions or other goals for which we might not be able to put a dollar price, I think Congress should say, State spending of federal money on these projects must be cost-effective. By cost-effective, it means you must do the things that cost the least to do the most. For example, it costs about $10 a ton to reduce CO2 emissions through traffic signal coordination. It costs about $5,000 to $10,000 a ton to do it with building a light rail line, if you'd save any emissions at all. And by through compact development, where you put people into higher densities, that's around thirty to fifty thousand dollars a ton. So, for every ton you reduce building a light rail line, you are foregoing forty to ninety-nine tons that you could have saved if you had put the money into traffic signal coordination instead. And seventy-five percent of the traffic signals in the United States are not well coordinated. Now, it's not enough to simply have a requirement that spending be cost efficient. Because the state of Utah imposed that requirement on the Metropolitan Planning Organization for Salt Lake City. They said you have to examine a full range of alternatives, which most metropolitan areas don't. You have to show that the alternative you're selecting is cost efficient. And so they did, and lo and behold, they picked an alternative that called for building two very expensive new rail lines. And the state auditor went and found that they had cooked the books to make it appear that those rail lines were cost-effective when they weren't. And when this was revealed, the Metropolitan Planning Organization said, well, it doesn't matter, we were going to build the rail lines anyway. So you need to have more than just a requirement that the states be cost-effective. I think you need to have a citizen enforcement process, whereas any citizen can go to 
the Secretary of Transportation and say, this metropolitan area or this state failed to consider a full range of alternatives. They failed to identify the most cost-effective alternative. They're wasting money, and you should go back and make them do it over again. And through a citizen enforcement process, I think we can uh, uh, ensure that federal funds are, are effectively spent. Uh, environmentalists have used those kinds of citizen enforcement processes for a long time, but we've never had one uh, imposed on a, on a government agency to be cost-effective or to be efficient. Now, I've got some other ideas on how we should reform uh, reauthorization there in this paper that is, came out today, getting what you paid for, paying for what you get. There's copies out front. There's also copies available online at the Cato.org website. My blog, which is called The Anti-Planner, is at the TI.org website. And you can also find some interesting publications at the AmericanDreamCoalition.org website. So uh, I guess we have time for questions and answer. I hope. <clears throat> Q&A time Raise your hand and I'll point And then we'll have someone bring a mic to you And just state your name and affiliation And uh, your brief question And if you want to direct it at one of our panelists uh, Please do so Otherwise we'll just leave it open To whichever panelist wants to uh, answer Yes sir, in the back In the blue shirt Howard Woldridge with the Population Connection. As we know, we're happily on our way to adding 100 million Americans in the next 25 years. And given the other increases across the world and peak oil is hitting right about now or next year, we must anticipate that the price of gasoline for the individual uh, vehicle is going to go from 2 to 4 to 6 $8, who knows where, uh, even not having the taxes that the Europeans put on them. In your in our planning for this next 100 million Americans, what should we be thinking about in terms of land use and where do we put these uh, new people? Do we continue uh, commuting 25 miles, 30 miles each way each day? Uh, or should we plan differently in terms of the market forces coming when gas does go up uh, dramatically? We saw the, the $4 gallon gas was already making Americans uh, wary of buying the F-150 and, and driving a lot. I don't think I heard one number there that I agreed with. <clears throat> there must be one. Let's go back through it. There must be... A hundred million people is just a, an arithmetic exercise. The simple way to look at it is we were doubling population back in the 50s every 30 years. We're now doubling every 60 or 70 years. So the, the doubling rate is much lower today than it was in the past. And so population growth of a third of increase in population over the next uh, 30 years is, is not exactly a scary thought to me. There's a lot of space in this country. There's a lot of room. <clears throat> um, and I really don't see that as a problem. A large chunk of that will come from immigration, and the question will be, where do those immigrants want to be? Where do they want to live? Uh, from that point of view, I don't see the issue. Uh, I certainly don't agree with the gas price notion. Uh, for one, we, we added we went to $4 a gallon, uh, as I said in my slides, and short-term travel went down 3.5%. What that says to me, you double the price of gasoline and travel drops by 3.5%. It's a highly inelastic activity. You can go to 6 or 8. What will happen is not that people will leave the suburbs and come rushing downtown, as I said in my, my presentation. 
What will simply happen, we'll have more efficient vehicles. Uh, and the technologies will respond. And I think the scary part, um, the fun scary part, in my view, is what happens when the cost of running a, an automobile is a quarter of what it is today. And I think that's much more a likely prospect than it's going to be three or four times, unless you do it with government taxes. Randall, you have Yes. Uh, looking at the data going back to 1950, Americans have historically spent 9% of their personal incomes on uh, automobile transportation. And what's happened when gas prices fluctuate is they spend less of their income on some other part of automobile transportation. When gas prices go up, uh, they might buy, put off the decision to buy a new car, or they might buy a less luxurious car the next time they buy a car. But they still continue to spend 9% of their income, and because our incomes are rising, we drive a lot more. We drive four or five times as much today as we did in 1950 per capita uh, because without spending more of our personal income because our incomes have increased significantly compared to the cost of driving. So $4 a gallon of gasoline, $10 a gallon of gasoline, $20 a gallon of gasoline doesn't scare me. It just says to me that it'll, if, if, it's, if it happens slowly, people are going to respond slowly by buying more fuel-efficient cars. If it happens quickly, they'll respond in the short term by reducing their driving and then uh, uh, buying more fuel-efficient cars in the long run and then going back to driving more. That's what we've seen in all previous gas uh, shocks. Yes, sir, in the back. My name is David Hoffman. I write for the uh, Fairfax County Times, a weekly newspaper owned by the Washington Post. Um, of course, we live in uh, in the Washington. We all live; uh, those of us, I assume, here all live in the Washington metro area, where we have mass transit, where we have the metro system, buses, and the subway system. And I traveled myself by by metro today. My question is for Mr. O'Toole. Um, I noticed that uh, in your paper, the one published today, um, and of course in Fairfax County, uh, people use a lot of cars. That, that goes without saying. I, in fact, I used, used one today myself, uh, as well as Metro. Um, my question is for Mr. O'Toole. In, in your paper, uh, you talk about the problems with mass transit in terms of productivity, that it's the least productive per mile per employee, and your solution is to uh, go after unions. And so my, qu uh, and, and basically the unions are the problem. Employee protection is the problem. My question is, uh, and, you and you favor contracting out to the private sector. Uh, my question is this, and this really now is the question. Uh, why not, you know, well, there has to be a preamble. Uh, wh why not? Uh, why not? Yes, contract out to the private sector, uh, but in the spirit of Franklin Roosevelt and the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, why not uh, offer a contracting out option to the private sector, but insist on collective bargaining and th at the same time, and then have a legitimate side-by-side -side competition between public management. Uh, through something like Metro that we have versus private sector management and see if contracting out and the private sector really is more efficient or if it's essentially what you might call a myth or, in fact, a libertarian urban legend. 
Well, we already have side-by-side -side comparisons. Uh, Denver's transit system is 50% contracted out. Uh, some of the contractors are union contractors. They, they, the companies have union employees, so it's not a question of union versus non-union. But the cost to the taxpayer of operating the buses that are, that are contracted out is between 55 and 60 percent of the cost of operating the buses that are operated by the, uh, the transit agency itself. The only reason why they don't contract out all the buses is because of, of the union requirement in the law that, that I propose to repeal, which is that they can't get any federal funds without the, their union signing it off on the, on the federal grants. And the only reason why they do contract 50% out is because the state legislature has required them to contract 50%. If they were required to contract 43%, they would, require, they would contract 43% because they can't go above that because the unions won't let them. Now, I don't think the unions are necessarily always the bad guys, but my real solution is to fund transit more out of user fees than out of tax dollars. If they're funding out of user fees, if they're funded out of user fees, then they're going to go after the users. They're going to try to get provide service that users want. And we have transit systems in this country that are funded 100% out of user fees. Uh, Atlantic City Jitneys are funded 100% out of user fees. The New York Waterway System is funded 100% out of user fees. It's a ferry system that no pro public transit agency ever thought to provide in this a uh, guy named Arthur Imperator decided to start running ferries between New Jersey and Manhattan and uh, makes enormous profits at it. So there's no reason why we can't have private tra transit, except in most American cities, it's illegal to run tran private transit in competition with the public transit agencies. So we need to get rid of those laws. We need to uh, allow more private transit and, and fund public transit more out of user fees then we'll have a good, a good transit system that people will want to use. Yes, sir, right down here in front. We'll wait for the mic. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, panelists. I wanted to say hello, especially to uh, you, Mr. O'Toole, because uh, I remember meeting you at the Capitol, and I was... Very impressed with your presentation, and thank you again for those visuals that take us across the country and give us a, a different context from being in Washington. Uh, you must have heard about the recent tragic accident with uh, Metro and the Red Line where there was a problem that was attributed to the computer system and caused uh, two trains to collide. One was static and one, one was moving. Um, I wanted to ask you if you have any um, prophecies about what will happen with automobiles, being that we have the GPS systems, we have cars now that basically can uh, alert you if you're about to drive off the side of the road, and we're seeing more and more automation in cars. Will we see a government-controlled car at some point in, in our lifetime, um, which would uh, control the fuel emissions, and, and but also control driving habits and possibly lead to savings with respect to uh, alternative fuels or whatever? Well, that's actually the subject of my next policy forum, which will be in January. <laughs> Is he a straight man? Uh, were you hired? <laughs> plan. I, I could hear it. Uh, I actually don't expect to have a government-controlled car, but I do expect that we'll have more uh, cars that can handle more of the driving themselves. I just saw an advertisement for a Mercedes that steers itself on the highway. Uh, both Honda and Toyota are making cars that steer themselves. They, they look for the stripes in the road, and they steer between the stripes. They also 
uh, shoot out laser beams or infrared beams to measure the distance between you and the next car in front of you, and they keep you at that fixed, some fixed distance that, that you feel comfortable with. And that way the car is essentially driving itself. And when you get cars that are driving themselves, you save energy, uh, you save time, you increase the capacity of your roads so you don't have to build more, as many more highways. Uh, it's really uh, going to revolutionize travel. It, it will be the next transportation revolution, not high-speed rail or anything like that. Uh, the problems with Metro is that it's a government-funded organization, and as somebody in the Department of Transportation said, Congress likes to fund ribbons, not blue broomsticks. Uh, in other words, they fund capital but not maintenance. And federal funds were used to build the metro system, and about every 30 years you have to go back and completely rebuild a transportation system, highways, rail, whatever, and they don't have any money to rebuild it. They've known since 2002 that they uh, didn't have any money to maintain their system, and they haven't solved that problem. And now we're, we're seeing the, the results, people being killed, employees being killed, uh, passengers being killed, broken rails, smoke in the tunnels, uh, delayed trains, uh, s slow orders. Uh, we, the Washington subway system is about equal to that of a third world country. Um, I'd like to add uh, that government policies now are to encourage people to use smaller and lighter cars. And these uh, cars um, are more susceptible to um, damage in collisions. And um, so this policy increases fatalities, makes road transport less safe. And I believe that um, the phrase for this is blood for oil. And this is the government policy. So I would not trust governments to make roads safer. This gentleman in the blue suit right down here in front. I'm Patrick Butler. I'm with the NOW Auto Insurance Project. And um, I haven't gone through all of this, but I've been following Cato and Mr. O'Toole and, and everyone on the panel. Uh, but I don't think there's been any pointing out that uh, under getting what you pay for and paying for what you get, that the paying for the cost of automobile accidents is entirely charged as a cost of owning a car. And anyone, you don't have to be an insurance uh, agent or uh, an actuary to understand that if you double the number of cars that you use for a given number of miles in your household, you're going to pay two premiums or double the number of premiums you pay. If you take one car and you double the number of miles on that car, there won't be any addition to your automobile bill. Now, this is poor economics in paying for the accident costs of using the highways. And so my question is, is... To anyone, why haven't you been pointing this out? William Vickery pointed it out in 1968 that the insurance system failed miserably to internalize the cost of accidents. And nobody else has picked up on that. There's some environmentalists now. But why isn't Cato doing it? Well, it is. A, there are problems in adjusting insurance premiums to mileage-driven uh, the insurers try to do that, 
they charge higher premiums to people who commute and so on. But modern GPS-based systems uh, can make it much easier for insurers to charge people on a per-mile-driven basis, and I, for one, would like to see that introduced. There is a uh, concept called pay-as-you-drive, where basically you pay, pay for your uh, uh, insurance at the gas pump uh, based on filling up. I'm not sure I agree with that, but I... But I On, occasion, on occasions when I've raised that with the insurance industry, they say that this is a great way to get even fewer people with insurance rather than more. And so I think a lot of the insurance industry is very nervous about a, a process that would, in fact, convince more people to drive uninsured. I don't see it as a, as a problem that Cato would deal with because the insurance industry uh, has that option if they want to. Yeah. And it's up to them to decide as a private institution, whether they want to insure by the mile or by the car, and if some company decides, let's insure by the mile, and they can sign up a lot of subscribers to do that, then other companies are going to do it. Uh, Cato would not want to see a law passed requiring insurers to do that, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a second home, and I haven't visited my second home in over a year, but guess what? I still pay insurance on it. And I think the risk of that home being damaged by a fire is going to be much higher if I'm there than if I'm not there, but I pay the same insurance whether I'm there or not. That's the insurance company deciding to do it that way. Uh, if I can find an insurance company that says, if you don't show up, we'll, we'll charge you less, then I'll take it. <laughs> Get out of this. When it was first established, mandatory insurance was first established in Connecticut and then Massachusetts, and they argued why make people who don't need liability insurance buy it. But they call the, the low, the 20 25% of the market, the low-income market, the hard-to-serve market. And the reason, by my analysis, that it's hard to serve is not that those people are bad drivers, but every indication of uh, decreasing ability to pay correlates with increasing increasing claims per 100 car years. So as people's credit scores go down, the insurers are raising the premiums. And my interpretation of that is not that they're worse drivers. And in fact, economically, you'd say people who are uh, with few resources would be more careful. My interpretation is the only way to save money on automobile insurance is to insure fewer cars, even if you have to share them across drivers, and drive them more, because all the miles are free. Therefore, as somebody who has a credit problem and they have three cars for two drivers, they're going to get rid of one of their cars, and they'll save money on insurance. But the miles have gone up, and the premium has gone down. The miles per car has gone up. And that's sort of a QED, as far as I'm concerned. It's simple demand economics. It's a... Uh... 
I'll use that when I teach economics. That's an interesting form of arbitrage that I've never heard before, pooling cars to save on insurance rates. Actually, um, Ian Perry at RFF, you might look at his work. He's, um, he's done the most extensive... Um, Right. He just, but in his work, he shows that the the uh, the the biggest externality in his and his figures about automobiles is um, is congestion plus uh, unpaid for accident externalities rather than the usual ones like air pollution. Yes, sir. In the white shirt, right down here. One of you mentioned before um, aligning street signals, um, semaphores. I mean that. If that if it, if we could save that much just from eliminating congestion, that sounds like a brilliant idea. I, th I think it was you, you, Mr. O'Toole. If if you wouldn't mind expanding on that, or, or well, traffic signal coordination today is very sophisticated, and you can have excellent coordination of traffic signals in a city that greatly reduces the amount of delay that people face at the traffic signals, reduces the amount of uh, uh, fuel they have to use. Uh, San Jose coordinated something like 120 traffic signals on its main streets, and it cost about a half million dollars. And they figured they were saving people more than a half million dollars in fuel every single year for the next 10 years, uh, and you know probably more than that if the signals didn't get out of coordination. Um, it's very cheap. It costs about $25,000 an intersection. But you go to places like San Jose and Denver. Denver, only about 40% of the signals are coordinated, and they don't have any money to coordinate the rest because they're pouring huge amounts of money into building rail transit. Uh, San Jose, uh, they could coordinate more single signals, but they're putting money into rail transit. Portland has decided to coordinate traffic signals, but they've got kind of a, uh, uh, it looks like a scam to me. They're, they're selling carbon credits to people and using the carbon credits to coordinate the traffic signals, and they're claiming that they're reducing fuel consumption by four times as much as San Jose estimated, and I just can't believe that they're achieving that kind of a... At least we're not doing it in Shanghai. We could be buying credits in Shanghai yeah. fixing the traffic signals. The payoffs on traffic signals go 18, 20 to 1. The payoffs are, are colossal in all of the operations categories. Um, but when you do the it... The issue is not so much money, Randall. It's very often a case of, of skills. Local governments don't have the people. Uh, the technology is there, but very difficult to get uh, the skilled people down at the local level, counties and cities that can do it. But when you do it, I want you to know you should make sure you put a trigger in the street so that not just cars can trigger the signals off, but bicycles can trigger them as well. Because uh, it's very frustrating to come to a signal that will refuse to turn green until a car comes up. Oh, and one more thing. The Federal Transit Administration requires that every time they, they invest in rail transit, all the signals have to be coordinated to optimize for the rail transit, which ruins it for everybody else, which means 1% or 2% of the people benefit and 98 or 99% of the people are harmed by it. That's a bad idea. Down here in front. Yeah. I'm an individual that... Carol George, that has been driving since 1934, and I'm wondering why there is an average of six accidents per day on the Capitol Beltway, and that most of them are 
near interchanges. A prevailing speed car striking a stopped one strikes with 100 times as much energy as striking another car that's 10% slower. So why don't we give the right-of-way to incoming traffic by simply continuing the lane line parallel to the outside lane at the taper and put markers in there for the proper minimum follow distance and have a high-speed entrance and eliminate the stopping that's causing all of these accidents and all of the uh, long lines approaching trying to get on the highways as well as slowing down all the highways in the traffic. Any takers? I mean, it's a real traffic engineering question, and I'm not quite... I know I'm not capable of responding to that. Uh, yeah. I've never seen a case where they've, they've used it in that way. The, 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 the acceleration lanes are designed... Uh, typical people to get up... To get up to speed. common law is that you yield to the through traffic. But if the common law is... This traffic has to yield to the other traffic that is trying to get up to speed. I, I won't. It makes I, it a lot safer. I wouldn't. Ar I won't argue with you, but I can just see backup uh, accidents coming on the roadway. So I, I guess I, I wouldn't argue that. I just not not equipped. I don't know if anyone wants to play. Sure. I think we're down to. We're almost. We're out of time here. So one one final question. This red shirt in the back. One, one question about uh, maybe some subsidies that are given to cars is rather than car like the car drivers subsidizing the um, the other like transit that's with parking uh, there's parking and, and um, mandates that businesses provide parking for for uh, for the customers whether they need it or not and uh, even parking permits given to say police officers and other people in the city instead of paying the money and if if that, those things are eliminated, and eminent domain, and also the fact that a lot of roads take up, make, make it impossible if you want to walk, uh, especially interstates and things like that, and people having houses knocked down to build roads. And if some of that should also be eliminated, if you, you, have, any, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, parking drives business. Parking drives retail especially. Uh, if you didn't have those mandates, the retailers would mostly still put in a lot of parking. Uh, I think we got those mandates because years ago, uh, retailers were content to live off the, uh, the streets, off the parking provided on the streets, and just kind of mooch off of that parking. And, and cities said, wait a minute, we're providing this parking. Uh, maybe the retailers ought to be responsible for providing some of it. So they started putting in these uh, rules. I'd be happy to get rid of the mandates. I don't think that uh, they really will make that much difference. If you look at a, uh, a modern shopping mall that's built today, uh, oftentimes they greatly exceed the mandates because they know parking drives retail. There's a 
bumper sticker, parking <laughs> On that note, we will adjourn for lunch up to the first floor. Thanks very much.